This is Red Threads Origin Stories with your host, Rebecca Hennessy. Welcome to Red Threads Origin Stories. In this show, we explore the fascinating stories of how some of the most successful people got started in their businesses and what they're doing today. I'm your host, Rebecca Hennessy. Joining me from Red Thread is Sean Hodgins. And today's special guest is Idan Shoham. Idan is an angel investor in technology startups focusing in Calgary, Canada with a particular interest in software companies with B2B business models. Idan is an advisor on the University of Calgary faculty of Science Dean Circle. He founded and sold a successful software company, Hitachi ID Systems in Calgary, with offices, customers, and partners worldwide. Idan is currently involved in developing Technology Incubator in Calgary, and he's promoting economic diversification investment in the technology sector in Calgary, Alberta, and Canada. Idan, welcome. Idan, why don't you start with your story and tell us how it all began with you. So, uh, the, the, my backstory is uh, back in 92, I guess, I was just finishing grad school. Uh, and at, at the same time, uh, my dad and a couple of his co-workers were in the process of outsourcing IT from uh, an energy company that they were working out. So they're all engineering themselves out of a job. Uh, and so the four of us got together and set up a company to do some software and IT services. Uh, and because two of us were related parties and two of us were not, uh, or two of not us, <laughs> Uh, we built a whole corporate structure to protect, you know, the two who weren't family from the two that were, which is funny because over the next six or 12 months, the other two guys at different times left to pursue other interests. Like we're all still friends. There's nothing rancorous. It's just, let's try this. Eh, eh, let's try that. Uh, more of that kind of situation. So it became uh, by default a family owned concern, which is kind of funny because it certainly didn't start as one. Um, and we, we were initially focused on what nowadays is called penetration testing. So doing IT security audits for medium to large firms. Uh, and I was kind of the technical side of the house and my father was more the business, you know, sales, marketing, back office side of the house. Uh, and we did that for a while and we kept seeing the same sorts of issues in one company after another, issues to do with identity and password management and things like that. And we, we had an interest in becoming less of a services company and a consulting firm and more of a, a product software company. Um, and so we leveraged what money we are earning from consulting to uh, fund the development of products. And by the mid-1990s, we had uh, software that was commercially available to medium to large enterprises to help uh, initially to help their users manage their many, many passwords, because that, that was one of the kind of common security problems is people had 20 passwords and they would write them down. And then your uh, application security was exactly as good as your building security. And you weren't running background checks on your janit janitorial staff, were you? So basically anybody that can walk in the door, which is more or less anybody that was motivated, could uh, access all your systems. So we built software to manage passwords and, you know, by the late 90s, we were out of the consulting business as a primary business. You know, whatever consulting we were doing was related to our software. 
Uh, and we were increasingly selling to big multinationals, you know, uh, you know companies with 10, 20, 50, 100,000 employees, not, you know, one or 2,000 employees. Um, so we grew the business. We grew out of password management into identity management, into privileged access management, which are all just kinds of software that are related to this stuff. Um, and, you know, we became more inter international. We were hiring more and more people. At, at some point, we opened an office in uh, Montreal just to access another labor market. We had remote staff really all around the globe. Uh, and by 2007 or, or thereabouts, uh, some interesting people from Japan came knocking and uh, they're from Hitachi and they were interested in some sort of a partnership. But it became pretty clear pretty quickly that what they were interested in was an acquisition. We hadn't particularly been looking to be acquired, but you know, there's a price for everything and they offered that price. <laughs> so they acquired a majority interest in the company in 2008, but interestingly, they weren't interested in running it or in integrating it into any existing company. Uh, so they, they wanted us to retain a minority interest and to continue to manage the company. And so the brand changed and you know, we, we became a subsidiary of a bigger company, but it was essentially the same company, still headquartered out of Calgary in Canada, still selling to the same organization, still making the same software. There's exactly zero staff turnover as a consequence of the acquisition, like things basically continued under a new brand, um, which is good and bad. I mean, we didn't get a lot of collaboration from the, the mothership. Uh, I think at the time the thought was to make lots of acquisitions and because one of the characteristics of our business was that we built a lot of integrations. The thinking I think was that we would have insight into other companies that would be good to acquire. Uh, but if you recall, 2008, 2009 were not kind in the financial markets. And so that strategy was abandoned because of external factors. Uh, so we, we just continued as a sort of independent company based out of Canada that happened to have a Hitachi brand stuck on it. And that continued until uh, 2019 or thereabouts when uh, some folks from the mothership came knocking again and said, you know, we, it's been a good run, but we'd like to own the whole thing. And so we went through a, a process and ultimately in middle of 2020, they acquired the remaining equity and we exited as management. There's a new management team in there. Still the same company, still, you know, the same team by and large, still doing the same things, but, you know, we're no longer a part of that. Uh, so after actually running the company for 28 years, we were cut loose and uh, set free. Uh, use whatever euphemism you like. It was a good, it was a good run. We had a good time and, you know, now it's on to, to do other things. So each of us has his own personal uh, interest. You know, for me, it was a, a chance to go skiing a lot and to go mountain biking a lot and to go road biking a lot. Um, but the body can only take so much of that. You know, I can't do that every single day and not kind of collapse. Um, so you need other things. And, and there's a desire to engage in the community and to give something back. So one of the things that we did um, about a year ago, so we, we created a company called MTech Innovations, and that kind of brought back the original brand that we had started with. And that's uh, an angel investment company. So the idea is to look for small, promising technology startups and to invest in them, uh, but also to help them grow, to, to become mentors and supports. Uh, and we, we have access to a whole network of resources, folks that we've met over the years who, you know, can 
provide assistance on a part-time basis to a small company, whether it's on contracts or marketing or HR functions or software development or anything else. Uh, so we, we can provide kind of functional operational support for things where a startup needs work, uh, things to be done, but they can't afford a full-time position. So yeah, support in that sort of sense. Uh, we actually also have real estate. So uh, we, we still have, as a part of the Hitachi transaction, they bought the operating business. But when we were selling, we actually owned the real estate that the company was running out of. And we retain that. And there's a little bit of uh, space that's uh, unallocated right now. So we have um, kind of a hot desk uh, co-working space environment. So startups ha- have access to physical space. And you know that, that's convenient for us, especially post-COVID as people start coming into the office again. It's convenient for us to, to be advisors or mentors for multiple companies in one spot as opposed to running around the city. Um, so that kind of brings us to what we're up to today. We, you know, we have this MTech Innovations investment company. It's an angel investor, it, and our interest is really in investing in companies that we understand. So what do we understand? Well, we built a, a software company that does bi- business-to-business software, so not really consumer-oriented. We built it out of our location in Calgary in Canada. So. You know, our ideal investment is the same kind of profile, right? Based where we are doing B2B SaaS kind of software. Is that strict? No. <laughs> uh, you know, you could change any of those variables individually. And, you know, if we like the company well enough, we'll still go for an investment. But, you know, that's sort of the, the sweet spot that we're aiming for. And that, that's essentially where we are today. Can you tell me what some of the biggest mistakes startups are making today? Well, we're really only just starting to see startups because, as I said, we, we set this up uh, just a year ago. We made our first investment later in the fall, I would say. Um, so what are some of the mistakes? I think it's just readiness, right? So you need to understand uh, you know, who your market is and how big the market is and what kind of staff you need and who your competitors are and how you differentiate from your competitors uh, you know, what, what's special about your product or service that will differentiate and, and drive revenue and drive growth? Um, and I'm not sure that a lot of startups necessarily get that out of the gate. They get a, a really nice, shiny idea, and they run with it regardless of uh, commercial merit, I, I guess you, you could say. Idan, do you see that companies that have a shiny new idea lose track by not having an effective plan to execute? Um, so we haven't seen a lot of companies that don't have a plan, um, but I think a lot of founders are doing it for the first time. And that means that their plan may be, um, wildly optimistic, right? For example, you know, we're looking at one company and, and they're looking to expand the business into new cities. So it's kind of a geographically targeted thing. And they have a plan to access other cities, but I, I, you know, we think that their projections for marketing spend are unrealistically low, right? So, so I think you see a fair bit of, you know, haven't done that before and are consequently wildly optimistic. Do you find that startup companies can be unrealistic about their customer acquisition cost and the lifetime value of their customer? 
Yeah, so I don't know that I've run into companies or startups that don't understand that there is such a thing as customer acquisition cost or even have a handle on what it might be. But I've certainly seen startups pitching for investment whose CAC is disturbingly high and treading higher. And that that's a problem because uh, CAC you can kind of measure, right? Like you, you're assuming that you've already got a, a, an early product, an MVP, and you're already selling it to a few folks. You've got at least some sense of where your CAC is currently. And if you've been doing it for a year or two, hopefully you've got some kind of trend that so you have a sense of whether it's trending up or down where it's going to go. Uh, and you generally weigh CAC against LTM, right? Like li- li- LTV? Yes, lifetime value. Um, the problem is LTV is more aspirational, right? You hope that the lifetime value will be X, but because the lifetime often is quite long, that's much less certain. And so you wind up in a situation where the CAC is perhaps high and, and rising, and the LTV you hope is higher, but you don't really know. And, and that's that's one of the areas where you get, as an investor, you, you, you see a red light flashing, right? It's like, if CAC is high and LTV isn't much, much higher, or if LTV is uh, less certain, then as an investment, it's kind of sketchy. Yes, exactly. A lot of companies talk about their burn rate, and they seem to have a pretty high burn rate for their first few years. And and for many companies, it, it can be very difficult for them to have enough momentum to overcome that hurdle, a, a large enough customer base. Yeah, for sure. And, and I mean, to be fair, we there's a whole spectrum of approaches here, right? So on the one, one end of the spectrum, you can be profitable really out of the gate. You start doing some consulting, which is profitable, and you feed that back into growth and R&D. Um, so that, that's a fairly low-risk approach. You sleep well at night, but you don't necessarily conquer the market, right? It's like you don't, you don't have the same kind of growth trajectory or, or market penetration. On the other hand, you can blow your brains out and try to grow really quickly and try to be the first mover and conquer the markets. Uh, and in that case, you're, you're basically throwing out any notion of profitability for some time. And you hope that when you do turn the business around, it becomes wildly profitable. And the classical case of that is a company like Amazon, which deferred profitability for, what, 15, 20 years? I don't know. Uh, and then became like this this monster. And I think a lot of folks imagine that they can be that, that they can be Amazon. And I think statistically, it's almost certain that almost all of them are wrong. Right? And yeah. but, but those are really two ends of the spectrum. And the question is... Is there consensus around where on that spectrum a company should fall? And by consensus, I mean between the founders and the investors, right? And uh, we've certainly walked away from investment opportunities where we felt that the, the company, that where the founders were, were too far to one side of that spectrum. Like we, we couldn't see a path to profitability in, in the foreseeable future. We like the team, we like the company, we like the product, we liked a lot of things about it. The valuation was was manageable, um, but we just couldn't see where profitability, where they would turn the corner and become profitable. And so we're like, good luck, I hope you succeed, but I, I'm not comfortable funding that. What do you think there, Sean? Yeah, I was going to just c- comment at this a little bit of a different direction, just, you know, customer acquisition cost and MVP is a little bit of an, 
being asked to count, like, what do you, how do you calculate this? Being involved with a lot of startups of just looking at how do you calculate that in an early stage company raises its own set of questions on it. You know, how, because everyone asks, well, what are your customer acquisition costs? And is it reasonable that, okay, you have an MVP and you've sold it for, to the first two customers. Do you actually know what your customer acquisition costs are? Yeah, and if you're early on, if you've only sold it, like if you're expecting to sell large volumes and you've only sold a very small volume, then your fixed cost divided into the num- few number of customers will uh, mutate that beyond all recognition. So it, you may not know what it is, what it's going to settle at but you should at least have a model that the, the CAC settles at something sane right if, if you've only sold to one customer and you've got you know three people on, on your team then the CAC is the cost of those three salaries and and there's no way in hell right that, that it's, it's going to be profitable but yeah. you have to project and say look I expect that I'll be able to pick up 10,000 more customers and the CAC will be this so it, it's a little more speculative but at least there's some rhyme or reason to it well, that's where I'm pushing it is, is that I think at the end of the day, you're hitting on the point, does the, you know, the founding team, does the CEO know how to, how to manage this, right? With the full expectation that there might be something that is a generic question. What's your CAC, right? And the issue is it's, it's, it's somewhat more involved. Like if it's a minimum viable product and, and some of the most successful companies, Honestly, their first product offering was wasn't viable. Like it, mm-hmm. some they managed, and I'll use the term viable simply. Can you get someone to buy it? Right, pay for it, being truly a proof of that viability. But is it going to churn in a couple of months because it's not quite living up to the market? <laughs> it's not that good yet. Right. So, so the issue is that okay. So now, now you're spending. An, more time with the customer retaining them and perhaps bringing your product development and R&D team to the table and going, how do you, you know, what, what do we need to do to ensure that that customer is, is, is satisfied? I'm just putting out some ideas here on just giving yeah, some and advice. Arguably at that companies. point, you, you don't have CAC because you don't have a via an MVP either. Like you, you've got a demo. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe it's a revenue generating demo, but you're still doing heavy lifting R and D, and so you're still in the development phase heavily. And then I don't know how you know how these things are treated on accounting terms. I'm, I'm by no means an accountant or a finance person or a money person. I'm, I'm an engineer by training, um, but I, I would argue that you want to have something that's you know in a steady state both in terms of what the product is, and it doesn't mean it's not evolving, but, it, but perhaps your, your investment in R&D is, is kind of flattened out a little bit, and your customer acquisition is, is sort of a repeatable, scalable, scaled process before something like CAC makes sense. Before that, it, you're just playing with numbers. Well, I think that's the... I mean, the exercise is it early on. You have to play with your numbers, right? And so, so to the point You're predicting. of predicting, yeah. yeah, it's a pretty, it's a best estimate, right? It's like, what do you think will happen? And are the assumptions around what you're estimating, do they make sense? And it's almost, and we tend to invest in the earliest of early things. So it's a little bit of making sure that people understand the complexity here and they're not answering perhaps even with a def- like def- like with a definitive answer because it's complicated right you may 
and and you need to talk the talk properly you know we we've we've brought a product to market i love early traction in that it proves that there's something there somebody's willing to pay for Right. But it may not necessarily even because some people are like, I, I'll will sit on a product forever and try to make it perfect and perfect, and then they're never putting it in front of the customer to challenge whether they actually need it or not. So in those cases, I'm like, hey, try to sell this because that's gonna if you can't sell this early, then your vision and opportunity analysis may be completely wasted because you're missing the boat. That early traction, though, becomes, and I'll use Meta Optima as an example, where we had great early traction because you knew that the concept of this product, which was an, uh, an imaging device for, for um, lesions, moles, for the early detection of skin cancer, was, was a great idea. The issue was then getting it into some of the clinics, and we went to Australia for that. We spent a year working with those to augment the product and improve it, and it was it was such a a vital um, product development cycle. But it, on one measure, the cap was ridiculously through the roof. But that's not what was happening. It was product development. You're still in R and D. Yeah, yes. I agree, and and yeah. we we certainly experienced that in the company that we built. Is no design, no product survives its first encounter with the customer on, on, on scathe, right? Right. Yeah. Because you think you know what the customer wants and you build to that spec and you kind of have to because you can't come to a, a customer or a prospective customer and show them nothing. Show them a you know, scribble on a piece of paper or an idea. Nobody wants to talk to you. So you have to build it and then you have to show it. And it has to be close enough to what they want to get them excited and to part with money. But once they do that, they're going to give you a lot of feedback about what they actually care about, which may be different than what you thought they'd care about. And you have to iterate. And, you know, at some point you've iterated enough that the feedback is smaller. It becomes a sort of steady state recurring machinery. And at that point, CAC makes sense. But until you reach that point, you're just in a customer-informed R&D exercise. And, and that's nothing wrong with that, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So after you have that figured out, what about the scalability? How accurate are companies with the level of scalability and the timeline? Uh, well, like I said, we're just starting, but I would say that most of the pitch decks and narratives that we're seeing are eh, optimistic. Right? They're not making enough allowance for Murphy's Law and competition and customer budgets and whatever else. They're, they're assuming relatively rapid market penetration. And, you know, I've actually seen founders on on a whole spectrum here. So on the one end, I see uh, at least I can think of at least one founder where if he projects he's going to hit X, it means he will hit no less than X. And so his numbers don't look that impressive compared to other founders, but I'm, I'm confident that they're going to be hit. Uh, and he's confident because he, he's willing to, uh, you know, put some of the investment essentially on ice and trust until he hits certain metrics. On the other hand, I, I see a lot of founders uh, showing a path to becoming a unicorn, to becoming a billion dollar company. I'm like, dude, you're a one man shop. You're so far from that. It's not even funny, right? If, if you can exit at 20 or $30 million, we'll all be happy. If you can go further than that, great, wonderful. But 
you know, that's not the investment yes, thesis. Exactly. What do you think there, Sean? I, I'd, lo- I'd love Idan to talk about valuation because that, that was a very good segue of, of the <laughs> expectations coming out of sales often comes in close proximity to <laughs> overinflated valuations. What's your sense of valuation? So valuation is an art, not a science, I would say. And I, I don't know how to do it any more than the next person. Um, I do know when I see something that looks too rich for me. And uh, there's been a couple of companies recently that we looked at that we thought, hmm, neat company. And then you see the valuation, like, not me, right? Um, so I, I think founders need to be conservative about their valuation. Uh, and that's because when they, uh, I think what probably what, what happens in some people's heads is they put together a model of revenue growth and the model is really optimistic. It assumes nothing goes wrong and everything goes right. And then they try to apply a multiple to the revenue that they expect that they'll see in three, four or five years. And then they're like, okay, that's our valuation. And that doesn't really fly. And it doesn't fly because as an investor, you look, you're look you looking at a business plan and you're like, hmm, let me think of all the things that could go wrong, especially as, as somebody who's run a business before, I've had things go wrong. So you think about all the things that could go wrong. And so then you adjust the revenue projections, at least in your mind, if not on, on paper, based on the assumption that at least some of those things will go wrong. And even if you then apply the same multiple that the founders did, you come up with a very different answer. So I, I think that's kind of one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is just, you know, every jurisdiction has its own community of founders and investors. And and there sort of is a scale at which they tend to operate. And I'm sure it's a different scale in in the San Jose, Silicon Valley area than it is here in, in Canada or in Alberta. So, you know, what I'm seeing in early investments here is... Uh, companies are trying to raise um, ballpark half a million Canadian dollars on a valuation of ballpark two to four million Canadian dollars. Um, same company operating out of the valley would probably be 10x the, the raise and 10x the valuation. And then they would hire 5x the people. They couldn't hire 10x because the cost of talent is so much higher. Um, and, you know, they'd be on a faster trajectory to either explode or die. Right. Uh, but it, it is what it is where you live, right? That you have to operate within the market or, or go somewhere else. Most entrepreneurs don't take into consideration who they're pitching to and they treat everybody the same. Understanding the investor you're talking to is most important. Wouldn't you agree with that? So you have to understand your, your audience. And, and, you know, your audience is multiple investors typically. So, so one of the basic observations if you're investing in startups is it's a high risk, high reward venture, right? The, the probability that any given investment either goes to zero or becomes a sort of lifestyle zombie company that you can't get your money out of, probability of that happening is quite high, you know, call it 80%. Uh, and then the, so you need a few companies, the minority of companies that you invest in to do 10x to, to cover you know, the, the non-returns from the, the remainder. So, so hence the high, high risk, high reward profile. And 
as an investor, statistically, the way you manage that is you make more smaller investments, right? So instead of investing in one high-risk, high-reward company, which is insane, you, you invest in 20. But if you have the same amount of money to invest, then it means that you're making investment 120th the size. Now, at some point, the investment becomes so small that it doesn't move the needle and it doesn't make sense. So if you're looking to invest, I don't know, let's say $10,000, right? You can't hire a person for $10,000, maybe for a month or two, right? But it, it doesn't move the needle on the company. And so on the one hand, you want the investment to be of a critical mass so that it has an impact on the company, so it has a positive result and you know is likely to, to generate growth and ultimately a profitable exit. On the other hand, you don't want to put all that much money into one bucket because you know most of the buckets will get drained, to abuse the metaphor. Um, so the way you do that is you find friends, right? And this is how I came to be in contact with Mark and Sean with Red Thread. They're, they're friends who are looking to also invest in companies. So if you've got five investors each putting in $100,000, then you have a half a million dollar investment and something could happen there, right? Whereas if you have a single investment of $100,000, you probably shouldn't bother, right? Then it's going to fail. Um, and so from the founder's point of view, you have to understand that you're pitching to multiple investors and you're looking for them to invest together and because the community of investors is probably not that large, they'll tend to know each other. So you have to, you know, treat them with equal transparency and respect. Because if one of them becomes concerned about your viability, I think the whole all, all the doors will shut. Idan, you've laid out a real nice platform here for companies and investors to look at things more logically, and thereby allowing everyone to be more successful. What do you think there, Sean? Yeah, no, I mean, there's a lot to talk about in this area because it's it's com it's complicated. Um, I I would augment the the value of investing as as kind of in a syndicate of sort or uh, having a network. Also, complements it isn't just about the size of the check that's written into the deal, especially in Canada. We've had to, we don't have this luxury of the amount of capital that pours into ventures in Silicon Valley. So we've had to be much more prudent with where we spend our money. We do have a very supportive government, but they are not writing big checks. Um, so the value that I've seen in Canadian syndicated investments and it, and, fr and frankly, more so even in the angel networks than perhaps the Canadian venture capital arm is this more collaborative. Hey, I'm going to write a check, but I also might have a Rolodex of people that, that would open a, some business development opportunities. And this is also, I think a big part of what we're trying to do or the vision of what Red Thread is trying to bring to the table is like, if you've got some good practical experience and you may not necessarily be an angel investor, you can still get in and really contribute to this ecosystem by, you know, writing a smaller check, but bringing more value in other ways. It's just a little bit of an overlap of being a, a you know, and yeah, people hear about, um, you know, an overly enthusiastic investor or something who's deemed to be meddling in the company. So that you, you got to be careful not to fall into that category. But yeah, I'd throw that out as like, there should be in this private equity game, there's a lot more that you can bring than if say you were going to invest in a public company, which you just have no ability to influence in any way, shape or form. It's a lot different when you're dealing in private equity in those kind of companies. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think mentorship is key. I think it's it's key all around. So it, it's key for the investor because it's one of the more rewarding things you do. Like you're not doing it just for a financial return. You're doing it for, you know, kind of a, that human return. Uh, and it's key uh, for risk management, right? Because if you have suitable experience and you're able to share it as a, through a, a mentorship relationship, then you're reducing the risk that the company goes to zero. Uh, and it's go, good for the founders for the same reason from the other side of the table, right? And uh, if you bring in a few venture investors, then they're going to have different backgrounds and they can offer different sorts of uh, different perspectives for that mentorship. So it, I, I think it's it's constructive all around. That's really powerful. The mentorship can become the most important and that's similar to what Sean's doing with RedThread, right? Yeah, there are even a couple of companies where I'm engaged on a mentorship basis where I don't think that they're ready for investment. So there, there's no funds at all, but they're, they're folks that I know. I want to help them. Um, you know, I have some advice that I can give them here and there. And, you know, maybe they'll become investable at some point. One hopes. Uh, but even if not, like, like I said, part of the return of this exercise is non-monetary. So with most of these companies, what do you see? Are, you, are they looking to expand? Are they looking to go public? What do you see as their exit strategy? It depends on how ambitious they are, I guess. Uh, you know, it, I think most of the companies have a sense, uh, a more muted sense of, of what the possible exit is. So they're looking to be acquired by a bigger fish, you know, two, five, ten years at the outside. Uh, for obviously significant more than was invested. And then a few of them have aspirations to become that next unicorn. They want an IPO. They want to be a you know a billion-dollar company. Um, as an investor, we, we tend to take the former more seriously than the latter. Just the, the number, the, the, the probability doesn't support that. It doesn't mean it's impossible, but, you know, I, I don't make investments expecting to win a lottery. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Now, in the case of your company, were you looking to go public or be bought out at some point? I mean, was that part of the overall goal or did it all just happen organically for you? Yeah, I think in our case, it was pretty organic. Um, you know, I think when we started, we didn't really have any notion of an exit. You know, the word exit would not, was not really in the lexicon. So we were, we were running a company to run a company to make money. Like, uh, you know, we were taking money out as a dividend or whatever. Uh, so, so, you know, for the first number of years, we weren't even really, th we were thinking about growth, not about exit. So like it, it just, it wasn't really something that we were contemplating at all. Um, after a number of years, we started to think about an exit, but it was kind of an unsolved problem, right? It was, uh, we'll have to figure that out one day problem, as opposed to this is the exit that we're looking for. And then, you know, at some point, the exit came to find us. Like, we, you know, we were acquired. We weren't looking to be acquired. We weren't looking for an IPO. We weren't trying to exit. But, you know, sometimes uh, situations evolve. So we we never really worried about it. It was, you know, it, it became um, an open question at some point in the evolution of the company, but it was never really, a, you know, a, a strategy or, or an objective. Did you, did you ever need to re raise capital? Or were you profitable kind of from day one? Sounded like that was a little bit more of a situation. 
we never raise capital, which makes what we're doing now that much more interesting because it's not like we we're on the other side of the table before and now, you know, oh, this is what it feels like on the other side. It's like, yeah. oh, this is an interesting table. We haven't seen the, we knew that the table was out there. We'd never been at this party before. So it, it, it's, uh, it's all new to us. You did mention, and I do like these practical situations. You mentioned yourself that, you know, in the context of your people's projections that things go wrong. You mentioned that you guys had things go wrong. Can you speak to something of significance? Like what, like we need to enlighten the world that, hey, stuff happens. We saw COVID. All those models just got blown up for COVID. But what was your experience there that yeah, I mean, uh, there's things up and down the, the economic scale. So, on, you know, on the top end, there's macro events. You know, the financial crisis of 0809 was obviously not great for revenue. Uh, so, so you see macro events. Uh, you see entrance of new competitors, and so, sometimes they're extremely well funded, and you know, they they kind of suck all the air out of the room through tremendous marketing spends. So we saw some of that. Uh, we had cases where the labor market became tight. So there, there were times where here in Calgary, it became very difficult to hire and retain talent because the oil and gas sector was firing on 10 of the eight cylinders uh, and offering very high compensation packages. And it was difficult to retain talent. It's, it's very difficult to build product when you know, there's a revolving door around your dev team or our services team, right? Um, we had cases where we didn't necessarily understand customer needs, so you know we were not winning those deals. Uh, we encountered uh, corruption. Uh, that's very interesting. So, for example, if you want to do business with uh, federal and state agencies, in particular in the U.S., uh, those deals are done by companies like IBM on the golf course. They're not done in a formal procurement process as much as you might think. In fact, I remember one story. I mean, uh, you know, when you first run these into these are the good stories. These are the good stories. Stuff, you're, you're shocked, and then you're like, "Ha!" Huh, so that's how it's done. So I, I'll give you, for instance, we were pitching to some uh, federal. No, it was a state agency, and I won't say which agency or which state, so that won't get me into any trouble. And the entire team that was looking for products was advocating for procuring our software. And uh, I was making a presentation. At some point, the current CIO came into the room and said, no, no, we're buying the IBM product. And, and that was the end of the discussion and goodbye. Uh, and what I subsequently learned from a partner that was more closely connected and, and had made the introductions brought us into the opportunity was they had a pretty interesting arrangement. So what would happen is whoever occupied the CIO role of this agency, eventually uh, they would retire out. And then for two years, they wouldn't do anything. And, uh, and, and that's because there's a two-year mandatory cooling period, right? And at the end of two years, IBM would hire that person to golf for a tremendous salary. No, no agreements, no contracts, uh, you know, nothing untoward was ever done. But it was sort of a tacit understanding that if you are the CIO and you're making procurement decisions, then if you procured a bunch of things from IBM, Two years after you retire, you would be paid a lot of money every year to golf. Wow. Right? They're all perfectly legal. Nobody ever agreed to do anything illegal in writing or even verbally. It was all wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And it was all after the cooling period. But as a consequence, IBM got all the business. 
despite the fact that the folks that actually had to deal with the technology that was procured were quite unhappy with the quality of products and services and pricing and so forth. Wow. Um, yeah. So yeah. That, that, that's an interesting way to do things, right? Now, we didn't have certainly not the ethical stance to do such things, but even if we were inclined to do such things, we didn't have the financial depth or the breadth of product offerings to play such games. You have to be a very big company uh, selling very many products for very big prices in order to afford playing that kind of game. But that's how business is done in the U.S. government sector. Yeah. is my so, understanding. So, some, sometimes, but I, yeah. Fair, I have, but I, a fair uh, bit of it is done that way. Yeah. I, I, th I think I, I echo some of my own involvement with some of the larger companies and seen it. And I have a network of certainly folks that are playing in that realm. So yeah, no, it's... It's, it's, it, 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 it is actually number one on our kind of red thread theme which is you know it's not always what you know but who you know it's and, who you and, know and, 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 and uh you I mean, know, if you're a taxpayer you should be pissed off right of yeah. but it is what it is yeah so uh yeah so uh, you run into so back to your original point sean is you know examples of things that go wrong so those those are all examples right you know uh, macroeconomic events uh government corruption uh you know, competitors popping out of nowhere with big funding and, and making a lot of noise and taking up market share, not being ready for customer needs, you know, customers not really clearly articulating their needs. You know, another thing, uh, we we saw a lot of RFPs, you know, everybody knows what those are, right? Requests for proposals. And, you know, sort of the bigger the RFP, the less you want to invest in it because it, it's built for some market participant to take, right? And uh, so big RFPs are an interesting animal. They're, they're good for no one, right? So if, if you're the organization that's, that wants to procure something, if you just do the math, right? right? So let's say you put out an RFP with 400 requirements. Now, any, any salesperson can answer yes 400 times. So you don't want yes, no answers because they're useless, right? They're, they just mean that, that yeah, a salesperson said yes, big deal. Um, so what you want is actually for each question to have an answer of how will you do this, not whether you will do this. Because then the sales guy isn't technical. They, they can't they can't pull that off, right? So somebody with a clue has to actually give a, a believable description of how they do it. So let's say the average description is a half a page of text. So if you put out 400 requirements, you're asking for a 200-page 200, proposal document, right? Now, you don't want to sole source anything. If you were sole sourcing, why would you even do an RFP? So you, you send it to maybe 10 vendors. So you're asking to read 2,000 pages of proposals? Are you really going to do that? Yeah. I don't think so. Right. So, so there's an argument here to never, ever send really large RFPs. And if you're going to do that, it's not unreasonable for the vendors to look at it and go, well, who are you really going to procure from? Because we just met, so it's not me. So why would I waste my time responding to your your RFP? And and there's a whole kind of best practices around that. You know, meet the people, demo first, uh, 
figure out which requirements every vendor is presumably going to be able to do and don't bother asking about them. Ask about things that you think might actually be differentiating as opposed to kind of table stakes capabilities. Lots of stuff that you can do, but uh, that's, you know, in, in the, the space of how, how should you conduct your business successfully? I got another question that came up. In, and being through the experience, how often do you ever ask for for um, proposal documents from prospective um, new ventures? Because I'm doing it more and more, which is really understanding to, to how ready they are to sell. Yeah. Like, do they even have a proposal? Like, it obviously depends on the nature of their business. Right. So uh, this is a proposal by the investor to the founder or a proposal no, no. by the... The, co the companies, like I think even in our standard due diligence materials, I don't even know if we ask for the request for the standard proposal template. So you're going to invest. Oh, so this is a, a proposal that the founders would give to their prospective yes. customers to, to see engagements. Yes. Okay. Uh, so that I would, first of all, I'd say that's only relevant in B2B, right? Because you're not going to make proposals yeah. to consumers. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, in the one company that we did invest in, we did see proposal documents. I don't know if we asked for them or they volunteered them, but we did. Uh, it presupposes that they have a running business, right? That they mm -hmm. they have an MVP and they have paying customers and they're already out there. Uh, to the extent that all those things are true, it's a, it's a reasonable thing to look at. And it's also an area where we can assist. So we, in the company that we founded, we did a really good job of automating that stuff of having a, a revision-controlled, centralized content library that was used in all sorts of contexts, including in proposals, and having you know, a, a whole team of people in different roles in the company updating it constantly and leveraging it to turn proposal documents around in two or three hours, not two or three weeks. Uh, so so that, that's both something that's worth looking at as an investor and something that's worth optimizing so it's worth looking at as a, as a prospective investor and it's worth optimizing as an invested individual did you just start going down that lane a little bit did you use a crm or did you automate it or was it just yeah. manually a built-up yes, library we used a crm but no that had nothing to do with proposals uh, we, we built uh tooling from the ground up for proposals i, hmm. I had there might be stuff out there today but we did this 20 years ago and there was mm -hmm. certainly nothing on the market then and we evolved it for the entire time so it, uh, i'm sure they're still using it because if they were to stop using it their productivity would drop by an order of magnitude and nobody would want to stomach that yeah and the reason i threw that out is there is often there's an acceleration to a crm when they don't even have a proposal document Right. And it is a logical question to ask a, a company like you've built your financial model in Excel or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then you're proposing to sell B2B for sure is where this is. Right. So the question is, what's the next deliverable? Do you yeah. actually have a proposal document? And then if they don't, then it's like. Whereas if they produce this beautifully well thought out proposal document and it's yeah, all this that's confidence inspiring for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, that's, so that's I, I think I'm... we, we ask a more broad question, which is tell me about your sales process. Hmm. Who do you sell to? How long does it take? Do you have a CRM? How do you manage it? Where do the lead gen come from? What's your close rate? Who does what? Show me proposals. 
show me pitch decks, give me the elevator pitch. Like that there's a, a thousand and one kind of sales marketing questions. Show me your websites. You know, like a, one way to instantly disqualify an investment is not have a website or register a domain and not put content on it. Yeah. Right. Conversely, if you have something there and it's not very good, but you you demonstrate a willingness to develop it, that that's a conversation, right? That, that's something where we can help. So, so the, the entire sales process and sales pipeline are, are certainly of interest, in particular for B two B, but also, I mean, B two C is just a different animal. They you have to sell. If you're not going to sell anything, then there's no business. Right. Exactly. It's kind so, of a bigger version of the, the, the earlier discussion about CAC, right? Yeah. yeah. Is there any any recent companies that you've run into that you've been really impressed by, or or vice versa, something that just turned you off? And what 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 were the reasons? So you could probably go in either direction with that question. Yeah. So we there's uh, maybe four or five companies that we're looking at right now that are you know decent chances of getting investments. Um, so for starters, they need to have a really strong team. And, that, and that, that probably sells the company more than any other single variable. Is you know, As an investor, we want to be impressed by the team. Right? So, so what does a good team look like? It means that whatever you know, harebrained question you throw at them, they know the answer. They don't need to get back to you. They don't need to, to think about it. Uh, another element of that is their team should not be kind of monochromatic. So what I mean by that is sometimes you see the team is just money people, right? just finance or accounting or whatever, or just legal people, or just product people. Uh, ideally, you have a partnership where the founders are plural and one of them is a super strong product technical expert. And the other one is, is a super strong business finance accounting experts, right? Because that's kind of the two sides of a typical business. Uh, we tend to think less positively about uh, startups where the founder is either just one of those things or straddling somewhere in the middle, right? Which doesn't mean that they're necessarily uninvestable, but it, it merits closer scrutiny. And, and we, we've seen companies that we didn't invest in because we, we thought the management was just not strong enough. Like, uh, for example, there is a company that we looked at recently where we thought the product was, assuming it passed tests as advertised, phenomenal, but the management team was not. And the, the inventor, founder of the, of the technology was kind of on his way out for um, non-business related reasons. And so you have a case where the, the driving force behind the, the company is gone and the new owners are very well-meaning and positive people, but just don't have the, the skill set to really carry it through. And that, that's, that's a shame, right? Because there's an opportunity out there somewhere, but it's, it's not going to happen. Without a doubt, I mean, company culture, maybe you can speak a little to the things that you are doing or that you've seen that are and I throw out the obvious ones, which is perhaps some stock options or some of these other incentives to keep people around for the long haul. Um, I've also seen the situations of like the PMC Sierras with the fully paid catered cafeteria and, 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 and that. But in terms of trying to offset 
perhaps maybe not as competitive a salary, which mm -hmm. is nature of the Canadian bootstrapping environment. What are you seeing as strategies that you like uh, for the companies you're running into that are addressing these challenges? Yeah, that, there's a lot of ways to tackle that problem. Um, so one that we used, I think, quite effectively. Well, two, I guess two that we used effectively. One was having a good work-life balance. So really trying to throttle people's hours, limit them to, to those 40-hour weeks. And, you know, for technology companies to do 40-hour weeks is really strange. But we, we really did that. And if you if you needed to do work more on something this week, then you just back the time and... You know, we, we would pretty much insist that you go do something else next week or the week after or something like that. Um, so that's one way to do it. I think another attractive thing is just the quality of your peers. So that goes right back to the uh, recruitment problem, right? If you do a good job of recruiting good quality talent, then that will have an, a fairly direct effect on your retention, especially for people who've worked in a few other places uh, where the recruitment process wasn't as rigorous They'll, they'll generally appreciate more when their peers are productive rather than where they have to kind of pick up the pieces for their peers' inability or an, unwillingness to work. Um, you mentioned equity. We, we didn't really have the, an option of doing that, but that's certainly something that I see in a lot of startups is they allocate a certain um, percentage of the equity pool for uh, staff retention. And I, think I support that. It's a good idea. Uh, catering, I think, was more, uh, you know, early 2000s yeah. value thing. I, I don't see yeah. that too much anymore. You know, we, we certainly dabbled in that for a while, but I don't think it's, it's really, I mean, people should, you know, get out of the building once in a while and get some fresh air. So I, I don't know if I'm a big fan of that at, at this point. Um, career development, I think people want to be learning things and they want to see growth. I think that's very important. Uh, that keeps them around. I mean, you circle around all this stuff, uh, solving a problem that you care about. So the company that we have invested in, you know, they're in the ESG space. Uh, a lot of people want to be in that space. They, they want to work on making the world a better place. So if what you do as a company is attractive, I think that's very good. I, I think conversely, if you're in, in one of the industries that is painted, uh, even if your company is well run and positive and everything's good, but if you're in an industry that's seen in a negative light, I think it, it, you're probably finding it's increasingly difficult to attract, especially young talent. So like if you're a coal miner or an oil company or a tobacco company or whatever, good luck to you. Right? Yeah. I, I think the, the supply of capital is drying up, the supply of talent is drying up, and the customers are kind of stepping away. So uh, certain industries are have an easier time acquiring talent than others. Heck, Facebook has a, a difficult time acquiring talent because of being involved in you know political manipulation campaigns and things like that. It, they've, they've certainly lost a lot of talent to other competitors in the Valley, and there's plenty of people down there that will not work for them. Um, so I, I think being seen to be making the world a better place rather than the reverse is essential to uh, re recruiting, re attracting and retaining talent. But at the end of the day, you have to pay. The market's expensive and becoming more so. Curious, your thoughts on just annual reviews or the involvement of senior management with one-on-ones or or that mentoring or career development. Um, what was your experience? What's your thoughts on that? Um, 
Yeah, we, we did that. I think it's not a bad idea if you don't take it too far. So if it's a really formal, stiff process, then I think it's more negative than positive. On the other hand, if it's just a venue for people to vent their frustrations and get them sorted and for more of a mentorship to happen, then I think it's it's absolutely worthwhile. I think the, the challenge that you run into is um, review processes are, they have two separate purposes, right? So one of the purposes is essentially positive. It's career development and mentorship and making sure that the motivations of the employee and the management are aligned. But the other, men, the other motivation, which is sounds similar but really isn't, is to identify problems and create a paper trail of dealing with those problems in the event that you need to follow through to a termination. And it, it's, it's really awkward that those two things exist in the same venue. Right, because it creates too much stress for the former, which is mostly what you want to do on the off chance that you need to do the latter. That's why I'm pointing this like I'm just thinking about, you know, some of the issues that you run into as, you know, when you start to actually having to run a business and in these startups is the company culture, the team is so important. You know, how do you deal with these issues? Sometimes you'll get employees coming in and they'll look have some level of expectation and they should about, you know, when, when do they get a raise, right? Like what, what are the expectations? So, so I'm just throwing a question or two yeah. out there. I mean, I, I think transparency is always healthy to the extent that you can in terms of legal and policy and other issues be transparent. I think you should be transparent. And I think it's helpful to have kind of a monthly one-on-one -on -one for everybody and their manager, mm. just, just to, to, to ensure that that bi-directional communication happens about career and, and happiness and productivity and, and so forth. Beyond that, it, it's more a question of what you want your policies to be. But uh, to your point, corporate culture is important and it tends to flow from the top down. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. I'm looking at your list there, uh, Egan, to make sure that on your website, I go with I. I used to do this all the time. Give us your top ten. Yeah. Do's top and don'ts. Maybe top yeah. five. I don't know. Let me go through the list. <laughs> Where do you see? Uh, let's start with the don'ts. I always find those ones are the most like just red don't do this because it really pisses somebody off or, or just becomes a showstopper in terms of uh, fundraising. You mean? Yeah. For the founders, guidance for a founder, raising capital, don't do these five things for certain. I'd say, well, maybe it's easier to say do's because do's and don'ts are kind of mirror images. I'd say sure. do show a, either current or clear path to profitability. Right? Do, do show me how you're going to make money with this. Um, do explain what's differentiating about your product or service. Do explain where the market is and how you're going to capture it, right? What your sales process, what your marketing and, and so forth are going to be so that you actually generate revenue. Uh, do identify your competitors and how you're going to compete with them. Like right? uh, that, that's a big one. I, I see a lot of folks uh, that, that kind of downplay the competition and, and that's, that's just not believable, right? That, 
that there's always a, a competitor somewhere. Uh, do show me how it works, right? Uh, I, I don't want to. I don't want to hear about the product if it if it exists. You can show it to me, right? If you can't show it to me, you have to at least explain why you can't show it to me, and and it, it better be because uh, it'll be ready next month, not because oh, we haven't started building it or because it's top secret or something. Um, do talk about your team and how you're going to grow your team because the, the company is the team. The team is the company. At the end of the day, it's a, it's a human enterprise. And that team needs to be strong. It needs to be agile. It needs to be smart. But it also needs to span sort of the commercial and the technological aspects of the business. And if the don't is, is don't be in one of those silos and not the other. All right, that companies that are purely financial engineering exercises, I'm sure there's a way to make money out of those things, but you know, I don't have the expertise to touch those. Um, do talk about how you're going to scale up, but don't live in fantasy land, right? It, it has to be believable. It has to be accomplishable. It has to be, has to allow for, you know, Murphy's law for shit happens. Things don't always go to plan and your, your plan should have enough slack to account for the things not going to plan reality. Um, I mean, do talk about your financials. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm focusing more on product and service, but you know, the valuation has to make sense. The revenue model has to make sense. The customer acquisition model has to make sense. The customer acquisition cost and sales pipeline have to make sense. Um, you know, the, the, you have to talk about ownership and dilution and cap tables. Um, those are frankly not very interesting conversations, but they're you know important gatekeeping kind of conversations. They're probably interesting to some people, just not to me. Um, and and do be transparent about how much money you need to raise. Not not just not not just now, but in the future. And one of the don'ts I would say is don't expect to go back to the well for too many rounds. Right. So if you're like a, an Amazon or an Uber or a Google or something, then sure, four, five, six rounds make sense. But if you're a run-of-the-mill smaller tech company, if, if you've got to go back for even, a, say, a third round, I think that's indicative of execution problems more than growth perspectives. Yes. Like a, smaller software companies that go for like a Series E, they're just dead money. Your list, which I wrote down, I think are all fantastic. It did also trigger me to be like the what not to do's, which might be an interesting way me to ask questions back on this because it was all like more pet peeves, like what things. And I uh, and I'll throw like show profitability. I think it overlaps on that. What series do you think? Like, if you were to have an investor come to you and pitch that even was presenting, and the one that is that I you hear almost all the time, and there's some legitimacy to it, but it it irks me a little bit as an investor. Is this is the rat raise I'm going to do to get me through to my Series A, right? And somehow that doesn't fit well for me for some reason. Like it's almost like you, you, I, I realize that, but don't pitch it so forward that way. Like almost 
Give me the pitch that would see you through to profitability, which was your first point. Show me how you get to profitability. Is like how much money at the end of the day, and it might be $20 million, and I can make this into an unbelievably profitable company. The secondary thing is how the heck do we split the $20 million up? Because you're not getting a check today for it. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit of a, you know styles of pitch on the one side where it's like, oh, give me this money and that'll get through me to series A, which means I'm going to be back asking for more money kind of irks me a little bit. So I'll throw that back at, at, at you as just kind of what, what are your thoughts on anything there? Yeah, I, t- I tend to be with you. I mean, if we're operating, a, you know, in Calgary or in Vancouver or in Edmonton, these are not huge markets. So show me a path to profitability from your seed funding. And if you exhaust two-thirds of that money and you see a path to bigger profitability that requires more investments, by all means, let's have that conversation. Maybe that's when you bring in other bigger investors to the table. But if there's no possible way to get to profitability just based on the seed funding, that starts to raise questions about, you know, is this really a business? Like, uh, you know, is this a super high risk? Because that, what that, the, what's not said in that question is, I need a Series A or the business will go bust, right? right. And, and, and I don't really want to see that investment, right? I want to see an investment that can be modestly profitable with a seed investment and then maybe more profitable with a Series A. That, that sounds a lot better to me than, you know, tied me over to the, the bigger, more meaningful investors who will probably dilute, dilute you down to zero anyway, and, and then we'll see, right? Like that, that doesn't sound like a great deal for an early investment. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm going to keep going unless you guys other jump in. But uh, you, you, you pu- touched on a couple of things. There's probably seeing here. I'll skip to the how it works because you then your second item was you know how do you differentiate your product or service? But uh, I'll go to the how it works first because obviously that there's a big overlap there. But sometimes investors don't like to. N- the, comp, the investor to get too down into the weeds. And I think you alluded to that a little bit, but what's your feel? What's the right balance there between like, show me how it works and this balancing act between how does the product differentiate itself from the competitive environment out there? Yeah. So my sense is uh, depending on your investor audience, you need to be able to go all the way down that rabbit hole. And it, and it shouldn't scare you. And if you can't go down that rabbit hole, that's a pretty big red flag. Mm. And and I mean, like I say, I'm a, I'm more a technical guy, I'm an engineer by training. I was the CTO of a company for God knows how many years. So I will go down that rabbit hole, right? And if it's not really my you know my area of expertise, that just means I'll ask more stupid questions. But I'll still go down to the bottom of the rabbit hole. And as an investor, I, I, I feel a lot better if I understand what you're doing down to the bits and bytes. And I, I will not invest if, if I can't wrap my head around it. Now, I don't know that I'm typical in that way. I suspect I'm not. But that makes me, on the one hand, perhaps a more difficult investor to attract, but on the other hand, probably a better mentor to have. I, I'm right on the same camp as you. And I think Mark would tell you like, how many times like. I do absolutely need to wrap my head around it. Otherwise it just, it doesn't resonate, but there are, you know, there are the audiences out there, the knowledge base that don't go too far down there. 
talk about your business. I'm investing in your business, not a product. So I was just that's why I was curious to get your perspective. But I'm I'm on the same page as you. I don't think those are mutually exclusive. I, I go down both rabbit holes, right? So I sure. want to understand the technology stack and where it's running and who's building it, and I want to talk to the people who are building it. And you know, I, I've had cases where I've actually asked and got at access to source code to look at it and see. All right, show me your code, right? Like, are you writing competent code? So, um, when I say down the rabbit hole, I'm, I'm going all the way in. On the other hand, I also want to see what your customer acquisition strategy looks like and your CAC model and, and your LTV model and, you know, how you're marketing and where you're spending and how you're promoting it. And, like, I, I want to see that too. It's a completely different rabbit hole. But I think both of those rabbit holes have potential to kill the business, right? Like if you if you're not executing perfectly in both of those dimensions, you're dead. So the more I can see, the more I can get a sense of is this a real viable business, and the more I can help you if I do invest. Yeah, and you actually just hit on one where we need to follow up is just the serious due diligence, right, on some of these things does require going down these rabbit holes. Mm -hmm. And that's one area I think I've seen it once of like proper source code, like sending in a, a Dan into a company and go, show me your source code. Let me see actually what's going on because the reality is... <laughs> you don't have any visibility on anything, even if you're just doing a product demonstration. And I've seen, I've seen pitches that do like mock simulated software and it looks amazing, but, but the reality there. is there's no code there at all. So, so that's where it's like the yeah, interesting one, but man, is that important to get your head wrapped around because so, I mean, the simulators are really good. <laughs> Like we we've only been doing this for a short time, and I think in, I've looked at source code for at least three of these companies so far, maybe more. But it's certainly three that I can think of off the top of my head that I talk to the developers, and they sh you know it's like all right, show me show me the code, and you know two things come out of that. One is I get a sense of where they're at, and two that they get some free advice usually. Sure. And in one of the cases, it, it just gave me GitHub, like it was, it was, you know, on a GitHub thing, it just gave me access. It's like, okay, go nuts, read only, access all you like. Here's eight repositories, have fun. And, and that's actually more difficult because it, then it's not a guided tour. It's more of a find your own way. Sure. But it, it, it's a real quick way to tell how much is real and how much is, uh, you know, imagined. Complete. I'm going to come back to the competitor one, but team and company, two pet peeves. I'll throw one. One is checking their LinkedIn profiles. Members of the team that don't actually identify themselves as on the company who's pitching team. Or, or part-timers, right? So they, and they or, show yeah. up on the team, but they're really not doing this full-time. So I see a big name advisor, I'm, I'm basically out, right? Because I, I know that they've got a hundred things going on. So they're just lending their name to something. Well, the way that we've been calling that out is asking them very directed question when they put a big name advisor in, how much of this round are they participating on? And you, I would say I'm at 100% of they're not in interested in it. That's like they're there for their resume, but that's a showstopper for me, right? It's like what if you put them into your deck and they aren't actually investing into your story, then 
if anybody would be qualified to invest in the, would be this person. So it's a funny juxtaposition there when you when they're putting this forward right in front of you as here's why you should invest becomes an obvious. Well, okay, well, how much did they invest? And when they say no, it's like, uh, is this a problem? So anyway, it's funny that that, that does occur often. And that's, that would be one of the don't do this unless they are really into it. Like if they're mm. like, obviously you have a great, and they're putting an investment in and they're actually part of your pitch, maybe it's, even. It's just a better, bigger pattern, right? No, no bullshit. Yeah. Just don't, tell don't. me what's going on. That's that. That's 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 another one. Don't don't lie. If you get caught in any sort of a, a an ex, well exaggerations and lies are like a little bit of that situation. Or emissions. 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 Yeah, emissions. We strongly put, encourage just like footnoting things. Like if you put some statistics in there, it just gives a. Whether the person's going to look it up or not, it does. Because sometimes they're just, this is a $7 billion industry and you just know it's coming out of nowhere. And you just, I don't so those care. Are, I don't care. What, I want to see what you're going to make, not what the other people are making in this business. Right. Yeah, yeah. 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 You can forgive a lot of red flags when they're newbies, right? When they're really green at raising funds and they're following a recipe and the, the recipe shows do X, do Y. There's no substitute for a conversation. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So how important is it for a company seeking funding to have an organized presentation? I, I will throw it to Becca, like we do, and this could be a, a question back as well, which, which is just the energy level, the presentation style of some of the that's CEOs, right. like how to, and that, that's where it was like Becca and Ed, we, we got a whole bunch where it's like, we got to send, because Becca will send, she does this amazing presentation. It's her background is obviously as a country singer. Her confidence speaking is fantastic. So it's like a lot of introverted, maybe software developers or somebody that are quiet. Their style of how they're presenting isn't exuding a leadership quality or the confidence necessary to get an investor excited. What's your take take on that? Body down? You want a leader that behaves like a leader. It's a simple as that. Yeah. Like if they're if they don't project the the energy and the uh, agility the mental agility and the organizational agility to lead then the company will fail it's just a given and the converse is, may well be true as well which is if you have a sufficiently strong leader your company may not be that strong but somehow you'll find a way Hey, Don, I want to thank you for a great interview. You really put out a lot of valuable information that will be beneficial to a lot of people. Thank you, Don. And thank you, Sean. I look forward to seeing you again. Please join us next time on Red Threads Origin Stories.